There's the light. Good morning. My name is Lauren. Uh, I am the Where Love Pastor here at Eastlake. And um, if you've come before, you will know that I am not normally the person up here talking at you. Um, Brent Johnson is our teaching pastor, and he is currently in Vegas, probably losing all of his stimulus money right now. Um, So you guys get me this morning, and we are on week two of our series on Exodus, um, a series on making sense of Easter. So how great was Jem's video? That's my brother, if you missed that. Um, That was awesome. Although he did say, I'm going to spill the tea, and then he didn't really... Like, he didn't say anything embarrassing about me, which I think was the point of that joke. Um, So, sorry, you guys, you didn't get any dirt on me. Um, But if this is your first time at Eastlake, you're in for a treat, because I am positive this is going to be the very best talk that has ever come out of Eastlake Tri-Cities. That's a joke. Uh, because this is actually my first time doing this. So I sort of don't know what I'm doing. And I was like debating whether or not I should say that to you guys, tell you guys that it's my first time doing this. But I obviously decided to do it because then I thought, well, if it goes south, they, uh, they'll have in the back of their mind like, oh, it's her first time. You know, it's just, she's, she's trying her best. And so I'm going to bank on that <clears throat> and hope for the best. Uh, So yeah, we're on week two of Exodus and talking about how the Exodus event helps us to better understand the meaning of Easter. Um, So yeah, we're we're fully aware that it's Easter's in two weeks. Um, And I'm trying to think of this as sort of a primer. So the more we can understand Exodus, um, the better we will understand the meaning of Easter, So that's kind of the angle of the series this morning. So without further ado, um, we can just jump in here. The text that I want to look at this morning is um, John chapter 20. And I'm going to read this first part just to provide you with some context to kind of give you a lay of the land here. Um, But it's really the second piece that I want to focus on more. So John chapter 20, this is the resurrection of Jesus here. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord, or they have taken away, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Just a sidebar here. John is the author of this uh, text. So he's, the one, he's speaking about himself in the third person. Like, I am the one Jesus loved. I outran Peter. It's just some silly commentary there. Um, he bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, the one who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. 
For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. So, again, just for context, Mary was the first one at the tomb. The tomb is empty. She's worried. She goes and finds John and Peter. Um, They run back and likely beat her back to the tomb here. So this is the second part, and this is the part I really want to focus on this morning. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them he had said these things to her. And Mary becomes the first evangelist of the risen Christ. So Mary is standing outside the tomb. Her faith has been utterly devastated, right? The dream is, at this point, it's completely dead. Uh, She deeply loved Jesus, and not in a romantic way. You'll kind of hear like pop culture rumblings about that, but there's really nothing in the scriptures to support that. There is a lot of evidence to support that they did have a special, a very close relationship. So she was far and away one of his closest followers, quite possibly one who is grieving the most over the death of Christ here. So Mary is the first one Jesus appears to, and he does so in a moment where she's likely lost all hope. She thinks he's the gardener, right? She doesn't perceive what's going on here. She is talking and looking at Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him because he comes in such an ordinary and a common form. She is so consumed with grief that she doesn't recognize Jesus. And actually, there's quite a few accounts in Scripture of the risen Christ appearing to people he knows or who know him, and they don't recognize him either, right? People that were very close to him don't recognize him standing in front of them. And the thing about that is the death of Jesus, as we know now, turned out to be this monumental event. Through the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, something has already fundamentally changed. Like a new, an entire new creation has dawned. And that's why we see when we read the story, all sorts of like weird stuff surrounding the death of Christ. The temple curtain tears at the moment of his death. There's tombs opening up all over the place. And they were sealed. They weren't just like 
There wasn't just a stone pushed in front of them, so sort of a big deal there. Earthquakes, lightning, all of that. <clears throat> all kinds of apocalyptic signs pointing to the significance of this event. The entire cosmos have been transformed through the death and resurrection of this one man. So it's not a stretch to assume that with everything that has changed, Jesus looks different too, physically. And if we combine that with the grief and the stress that Mary is feeling right now, it's understandable why she wouldn't recognize him. But the thing to note here is that she supposes him to be the gardener. So if, you're, if you identify as a Christian, like if you, if you are a Christian, you believe that this happened, right? Like the resurrection took place, past tense. Christ rose from the dead. It's already happened. The Israelites tended to look back towards the Exodus event, and we sort of tend to look back towards the resurrection as a moment in time. And here's what I'm getting at. I think a lot of us are still hoping and praying for a resurrection, still praying for something that has already happened. And maybe what we need is not another resurrection, but a recognition of the ways in which Jesus is risen already. I think what tends to happen, and this is like for sure true for me, um, we have very, very specific expectations about what resurrection is supposed to look like. If I lose something, if I'm grieving something, if I bury something, I have ideas about what that resurrection is supposed to look like, what that new life is supposed to look like. We think we know exactly what we need. And the disciples definitely did. They did not expect Jesus to die on a cross. That was not part of the plan. But what does the story tell us? The resurrected one was already there. He was already in Mary's presence. God had already done the work. The miracle she needed was to see the ways in which Christ was resurrected already. Do we know anything about grieving? Do we know what it's like to experience death and mourning and loss? Here we are a year later coming up on Easter. And remember how cute we were last year when we thought, like, by Easter, things will be normal. Um, yeah, I think we know what it feels like to be mourning and grieving. This is a time when most of us have probably been waiting, maybe we still are, for God to show up and make a way out. But is it possible that the way is already in front of you? Maybe it's just not the form you were looking for. Perhaps redemption is here. It just didn't show up the way we expected. Right? It's not the thing we were hoping for, so we just totally miss it. I mean, we know what Jesus looks like. He's tall. He's got long blonde hair. Right? Not the gardener. 
<clears throat> and this is more than, like, this sounds maybe a little bit like, like, this is more than a perspective shift. I'm not saying just look for Jesus in your life. Like, I would say, look for the glass half full in your life. Like, I'm not talking about optimism. Because optimism is really, to an extent, it's just denial, right? I mean, if we stick our heads in the sand and pretend like reality isn't happening, that's not, that's not faith. That's, that's denial. This is about seeing the resurrected God in your life, but in a way that you weren't anticipating. Because even when, like, even when familiar things die, we kind of, we understand that and we can wrap our heads around that. This is about seeing the resurrected God in your life, but in a way that is scary and out of nowhere. So going back to the text, this is where it gets really good. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. So when Mary does recognize Jesus, she's thrilled. She's elated, right? She's been, she, here she's been weeping for days. Not only does she think her friend is dead, but now his body has been taken and so when she finally does see him, she, like they're having a moment, this incredible reunion. And then what does Jesus say to her? Do not hold on to me. Other versions translated as don't cling to me. That's like a little harsh, right? <laughs> um, you'd think at this moment, maybe a hug would be appropriate or like a pat on the shoulder, um, but no, he says, do not hold on to me. Like, what, what is going on here? I think what's happening is Mary had known Jesus one way before, right? She had known him in one context on the front side of the resurrection. Up to this point, she's had one experience of God. But now there's a transformation, right? As we noted before, he looks different. His body is different. Jesus seems to be saying here, Mary, you don't get to know me the way you knew me before. You can only know me in the way I am presenting myself to you right now. The only God you can know is the God that is here right now. We can't hold on. And that's our instinct. It's like, of course, Mary. Like, it makes sense when you're thinking about the story because she, she, of course, he appears to her and her first instinct is to, like, grab onto him, right, to, to, keep, to hold him and, and, and keep him close. That makes perfect sense to us. And it is instinctual, which is not in and of itself a bad thing. Most of the time, when we hold on to things, though, it's because we're afraid of losing something. There's this uh, brilliant show on HBO called How To with John Wilson. Um, 
it's sort of a dot. I mean, I would say it's like planet Earth, but for human nature, he's basically, there's just all this raw footage of him in New York filming New Yorkers, like the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, and the whole show is like a commentary on human behavior and like why we do the things we do and what that means. It's actually quite profound, um, but it's like presented in a kind of comedic way. But um, there's this episode uh, called uh, How to Cover Your Furniture. Picture here. Um, And it starts out his cat keeps scratching his furniture, right? And so he's trying to figure out okay, are there ways that I could curb this behavior and what would that look like? And um, basically that line of thought leads him to interacting and interviewing several people who have like fully committed to covering their furniture with plastic. Um, (laughs) And he's talking to them and they're like, so proud of this, right? They've they've sought out this super expensive high-end oftentimes custom-made furniture, and then they choose to cover it with plastic, which is both unsightly and uncomfortable. Like, I'm looking at this picture, and it's like the dog did not get up there on his own, right? Like, someone had to be like, okay, come on up here so we can get the picture, because the dog doesn't even want to sit on that. Um, Right, and they're doing this to preserve what? To preserve the value? Are they going to, like, resell it later and are hoping to get the same price? Are they just wanting to protect it and not, like, spill anything on it? Um, like, they're holding on to this, right, in a weird way. And, I, okay, if you have, if all your furniture at home is covered in plastic, I am sorry. I Come talk to me after this, and I would love to hear, like, your five points on why this is worth your time and your money. Um, Sorry, (laughs) I don't get it. Um, Right? And that's just a silly example, but we do this, right? Like we hold on to things. We hold on to relationships and opportunities and experiences. Um, At the end of the episode, he says, quote, humans will go through a lot of trouble just to make themselves feel like they're in control of their environment. Holding on is always an attempt to control. And oftentimes I think that when we think we're holding on to God, really we're holding on to old ideas about God. We're actually holding on to an image. And we do this like on an individual level as well as on a collective level. How do we minimize or how do we Yeah, how do we minimize the impact of any saints or leaders of our time? We make statues, we make federal holidays, we take quotes out of context all the time, right? Because if we have a statue of Martin Luther King Jr. and a federal holiday, well, then we don't have to contend with anything he ever said about poverty, about war, right? We're off the hook, When someone's life challenges us in some way, the easiest way to minimize the impact is to memorialize them in time, to put plastic over it. And I'm not, like, don't hear me saying that we can't or shouldn't honor these things. I think that's fine. I think that's good. But 
more often than not, we do this to escape the message if it's someone that truly is challenging us. Because if we're holding on to our ideal of who this person was, then we don't have to do the work. And we do the same thing with God. Now, I am going to talk about Exodus. You guys are like, uh, Lauren, do you know what the series is called? Yes, we're going to go back right now. going to go backwards to the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 43. Um, so this takes place several hundreds of years after the Exodus events. Uh, the Israelites are in the desert, and the prophet Isaiah is with them, and he does something interesting here, right? So um, verse 16, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. So he's reminding Israel, like they know this story, right? They've been singing it now, saying it, reciting it for years. They know where this is going. This is exciting. It's familiar. We get to talk about that thing that we all love. The good old days, right? He delivered us. And then we get to verse 18. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So he kind of pulls, pulls the rug out uh, from them a little bit there. He's telling God's people to remember what God did and then to forget about it because God is about to do something new. So God is reminding people, his people, that he's a deliverer, right? Remember that I am the one who delivers. Now, forget all about how I did it before, because the thing you needed before is not the thing that you need right now. If you're a bunch of Israelites fleeing Egypt, fleeing captivity, and the Egyptians are coming after you, hot in pursuit, and you come up on the Red Sea, you need God to part the waters, right? Fast forward several hundreds of years when you're in the desert. No one's coming after you. You don't need God to part the waters. You need water. God is a deliverer, but a new form of deliverance is needed now. Okay, but I was there when you parted the seas and I was there on the Sermon on the Mount and God did this and this for me years ago and it was great. And yeah, that's awesome. That is great. But Mary, I'm not revealing myself to you now in the same form that I did before. Don't cling to me. Do not hold on to me. And maybe now you're thinking, but Lauren, shouldn't we cling to Jesus? Like, you're up here talking to us, and shouldn't we hold on to Jesus when all else fails and things aren't going right? Is it always good and right to cling to Jesus? 
Yeah, sure. Unless he tells you, don't cling to me. (laughs) And yeah, of course, there's things that we can use as our foundation in faith. That's that's not what I'm saying here. We, we, there are things that support us in our faith. But you take my point here, right? Our tendency is to hold on to a form. And as long as we're holding on to old forms of God, we're going to miss out on where he's going. We're going to miss the boat. Maybe now he wants to show you something new. Maybe now the miracle you need is not what you needed 10 years ago, even five years ago, even a year ago. And we do this, we, we, we just, we love to talk about the past. We love to cling and hold on to that and romanticize it. And whenever we do that, we do tend to look back and put on our rose-colored glasses, right? I mean, sorry, I'm going to call BS on that. The good old days weren't that great. Good for whom? There was a lot of pain, a lot of ambiguity, and more importantly, there were a lot of things buried that are now being brought to light. Holding on is always an attempt to control. So if you were here last week, um, Brent talked about how the Easter event is the new exodus. Exodus, the exodus event foreshadowed the Easter event, the resurrection. And the resurrection event foreshadows the coming kingdom of God, right? When Jesus was here on earth, he talked all the time about, you know, the kingdom come, they will be done, the future and the coming kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is always coming to us from the future. The resurrection event, the Easter event, is actually a breaking through, a breaking in of that kingdom of God, That's the hope that we have is this validates that that kingdom of God is coming. It's here now. So it's not, it's not never remember, right? But it's remembering in a specific way. We talked about this last week too, that the word remember and its translation is not remembering and just as a thing in the past, but it's remembering in an active way, in a present way. So long as we sentimentally look back to the past and make God into something we can control, a story we can control, we keep the real, live, active, risen Jesus who is staring us down, calling us into new life, we keep him at bay. So we remember God is a deliverer but we forget the old form because there is no going back. Resurrection never takes the form that we expect it to. 
It is always, always pulling us into a life that we don't understand. It's a whole new way of being in the world. And often it means coming face to face with things that like we really don't want to look at. It's hard. It's scary. The other thing we see in the New Testament is when Jesus appears to his disciples, he immediately says, like, do not be afraid because they're freaked out. (laughs) It's not what they were expecting. It's pulling them somewhere they don't really want to go. And, you know, we do have good reason for not wanting to go there. It's hard and it means putting in work. The author, uh, John Shelby Spong, in his book, The Easter Moment, has a quote here that I want to read because I think it so perfectly encapsulates what I'm, my point here and uh, also just some of the meaning of the resurrection. Okay, quote, The biblical narrative pictures God as a living force in history, not as a removed deity met in mystic contemplation. So if God is to be found, there must be a commitment to live, to risk, to love, to be. We do not confront or encounter this God when we retreat from life into something isolated, like religion and designated by the word holy. We find God, rather, when we enter life, when we penetrate through life, when we dare to have the courage to be ourselves with another. So if God is to be found, there must be a commitment to live, to risk, to love, to be outside our self-imposed security shells. When we take this step, the meaning of the resurrection begins to dawn. God is a living force in history. We serve a, a dynamic God who is on the move. So, all that said, what are the things that we've buried that are now out in the open? What do we see now that we couldn't see before? And where is God in the middle of the mess? I feel like the last year is almost too meta for this. Like, uh, there's just, take your pick of the things we could, we could talk about that are now just like, we've come face to face with that we're just like, oh man, we can't control even how much gunk is coming up right now. Um, we could talk about climate change and how we were just like in smoke for weeks here over the summer. And we didn't even have it that bad compared to other places in the country. We could talk about, Um, racism and how that just keeps rearing its ugly head no matter how hard we try and push it down. Um, We could talk about the importance of mental health and community and how much we took that for granted before. I mean, the list like goes on and on and on. And I mean, I know I'm preaching to the choir here Um, because there's things on an individual level as well as on a societal level, a collective level of the ways and the things that God is revealing to us. We're having conversations we don't want to have, and we're being forced to look at things we don't want to look at. 
But the good news is that God never brings things into the light to bring about shame, but to bring about healing and restoration. Nothing can be healed, though, until it's brought into the light. So, as we begin to see some light at the end of this, like this last year, the tunnel of this last year, and there is light. I mean, last year we at this time we thought there was light, and uh, I think this year there is some real light and hope there. But as we approach the end of this tunnel, should we, we should be mindful of our urge to get there or to go back, to hold on to our ideas about the way things should be or what we think we need. As we prepare for Easter, can we embrace the invitation to let go? To open our eyes to see what God is doing now, where he's going now. If we can stop looking back over our shoulder, we'll recognize resurrected Jesus standing right in front of us, summoning us into new life. And that new life is what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks. So you're going to want to come back for that. Um, So I am going to say a prayer here. But before I do that, um, I do want to address the shooting that took place this week, earlier this week in Atlanta. Um, Eight people were murdered seven of whom were women, six of whom were um, of Asian descent. And this last year has been really difficult for, I think, for a lot of our, um, of the Asian American community. And this is just one more thing, one more weight of pain. Um, So, I bring this up because in the spirit of not burying things, let's not bury this. Let's mourn with our Asian neighbors and friends and sit with them in this pain. And I would invite us all to commit to working and really working towards bringing about healing and authentic, genuine restoration. So I'm going to just, I'm going to read the names of the victims, and then I'm going to say a prayer. Soon Chung Park, Hyun Chung Grant, Sunta Kim, Yong A. Yu, Delena Ashley Yan, Paul Andre Mickles, Xiaoche Tan, and Daoyo Feng. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for who you are, that you are a God who Here's to those who are mourning and grieving the most, who have lost all hope. 
We thank you for being a dynamic God who is alive and on the move. You walk with us. You surprise us. You have broken down barriers for us to meet us. Help us to remember what you've done, but to recognize how you are alive and at work in our lives today. Give us eyes to see you and the courage to follow you. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.